Well, some of you seem an awfully long way away. So come forward. I hope this is... Is it coming through? Yeah, I should never ask that, because if you can't hear me, you wouldn't answer, would you? Anyway, lovely to be back, as Simon said. I've had a few weeks off uh, with uh, following some surgery I had that I thought was going to be minor and turned out to be a little more medium, I think I would call it. Um, and, uh, but it's great to see you all and uh, great to hear about the Holiday Club uh, last week, which looks fantastic. And my only sorrow is, if you've seen the pyramids in the uh, courtyard there, is how rather sad and soggy they look, <laughs> which is a real shame. But it looked fantastic, the church. hope we got a fav- flavour of it from the uh, pictures that we saw. I think that might well have been a turning point in the life of this church. All those young people and children here, all the people helping, uh, all that they did and learned, I'm sure that that was something that's going to be very significant as we look back on it in times to come. So I'm sh- have you heard of the phrase, a turning point? I'm sure you have, haven't you? That, uh, it's like um, a crit- an event that happens at a sort of critical point, and then uh, it means that things sort of change direction, and uh, they're not the same. Uh, again, it's, uh, a, the whole course of events are changed. Um, in the Bible, we could probably identify some fairly obvious turning points as maybe um, the fall of man, where Adam and Eve were chucked out of the Garden of Eden. Maybe um, St. Paul on the road to Damascus could have, would be seen as a turning point, uh, certainly for him, but also uh, because of his ministry to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Uh, historically, uh, I thought of what about um, Martin Luther, who nailed the 95 theses onto the cathedral door at um, Wittenberg in 1517, and that's what triggered the Reformation and the birth, really, of the Protestant Church, of which we're members. How about in a little more up-to-date, 1955, when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus in Montgomery, Alabama? and and was a significant turning point in the civil rights movement in the USA. Even more recently, maybe you might think that the events of 9-11, when the Twin Towers uh, were attacked, would be a turning point. I'm sure you've got your your own ideas. Maybe you disagree with some of mine. Did you know the collective noun for a group of historians is a disagreement? (laughs) So-called, so they said. However, for me, I had a recent turning point, as I've already alluded to. Uh, I had some uh, minor surgery about three weeks ago, and afterwards I expected to bounce back in my normal way. But I didn't. It was really, actually, very horrible after the uh, operation. I was very uh, unwell, in a lot of pain, being sick. I was flattened uh, for quite some time uh, at home, and... um, couldn't do anything, felt incredibly vulnerable, felt very weak, felt very needy. Um, And what I experienced from you, my church family, was almost overwhelming. Those of you who knew about it, because I don't think I went around dancing around the rooftops saying what was going to happen, but I had an avalanche, uh, I can only call it an avalanche, of cards, uh, of prayers, of gifts, of flowers of people just leaving something on the doorstep, of texts, emails, all expressing prayers and love. And I was completely overwhelmed. I didn't expect it. I didn't really know how to receive it. Um, But I thank you all from the bottom of my heart 
for the way that the church community, those who knew about it, gathered around me and upheld me through what was an incredibly difficult time in your prayers and with your practical outpourings of love. And I am deeply grateful to you. And why I think it's a turning point for me is because I, those of you who know me quite well know I'm quite a coper and, I, and, I, and I'm quite good at getting on with things. And I was in this vulnerable, weak place. And what I learned was how much blessed it is to receive instead of give. And you taught me that. And God taught me that. So I want to thank you very much. So I think as I look back, as I go on, this will be a very significant time for me, not the least of which is I got rid of that blooming gallbladder. (laughs) So, great. So, why am I talking about turning points? You're probably going, I don't know. Well, Exodus 19, 1 to 8, okay? Um, We're going to hear of that in a minute, and it's seen as a turning point by Old Old Testament scholars. Why? Because nothing was ever the same afterwards. Um, And the reading is at the very centre of the book of Exodus. Thank you for all those who are moving to get Bibles. Um, Rosemary will tell you what page it is. I think it's 76. Uh, But she'll be up here in a minute reading it to you. But it's the centre of the book of Exodus, and it's this pivotal point. In essence, what happens is that um, before Exodus 19, we have this sort of raggle-taggle mixed bunch of escaping slaves coming out of Egypt. And after, we have the formation of a new community. And it's not just any old community, but one of the, uh, a community that is created by God and based solely on his faithfulness, uh, on faithfulness to his commands. It's the very moment where God creates a nation for himself. And the significance of this is underlined by the use of the words on that very day in the passage that Rosemary's going to read to us in a minute. It's a very small phrase. It's easy to overlook, but no words in the Bible are superfluous. So we probably good idea to take notice of that verbal point, pointer to how important this passage is. So listen out for it as Rosemary reads. Um, It's Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 8, and it can be found on page 76 in the Church Bibles. At Mount Sinai, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert, in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, 
You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Rosemary. If you read the whole of chapter 19, I'll tell you what, there's so much movement up and down that mountain. Moses must have been really fit by the end of it. And we saw a little bit of the movement in the bit that Rosie read to us. And in the mind of the writer of Exodus, who was, by the way, probably Moses himself, the mountaintop is viewed as somewhere where heaven touches earth. Moses' mountaintop experience, well, it was powerful and overwhelming. And it was seriously a turning point for him and the people he was leading. So I want us to find out now about why it was important for us, even though we're thousands of years later from when it was written. So page 76, if you want to follow in the church Bibles on the pillars there. So looking at verses 1 and 2 first. Well, the Israelites have been out of Egypt maybe for about two months by now. And they're in the desert and they're camped in front of Mount Sinai. And the mountaintop is the context for what follows. And it is, as I said, the place where the human realm makes contact with God. In Celtic spirituality, they call that a thin place, which I think is rather lovely. A thin place where the boundary between heaven and earth is very uh, narrow indeed. And so in verse 3, God meets with Moses, but with words of command and sovereign power. What does he do? Well, in verse 4, he reminds Moses of how he's released them from bondage in Egypt and how he's carried them onwards as if on eagles' wings. Now, this eagle image is a very strong one in this passage because eagles, well, they're powerful. They're dominant birds. They're regal birds. But also, they are protective and sustaining and nurturing of their young. So what's God saying? Well, he's saying, I've liberated you by my power. And as you've traveled on, I'm sustaining you with my nurturing side. And that he will continue to do that as they journey onwards. But don't miss the little words that come at the end of verse 4. More little words that that are significant. Because it's not a geographical destination that he's talking about here. He's not bringing them to this mountain or to this place or to that place. The destination for this new nation is a person. He's bringing them to himself, to Yahweh, to God. I brought you to myself, God says. So their exodus was from one master, Pharaoh, to a new master, God. That's all very exciting. Well, it is to me, or it was when I was digging around in this. But now we do come to the very exact moment, the turning point in the narrative. Verses 5 and 6. Now, if you obey me fully, if you obey me and keep my covenant then. Do you hear that? If, then. Suddenly, the generous God 
of the uh, deliverance from Egypt, the flight from Egypt, has become this demanding God of Sinai. Israel's future depends on whether or not they keep the side of their covenant with God and are prepared to listen to him. God wants his people to become a community of covenant. He wants them to have their special status as his treasured possession out of all the other nations in the earth. This is actually massive. Massive. Look at the significance of the qualify, of the nouns and the other sort of qualifying words there that God uses. If you obey me and keep my commandment, then you will become for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is where God is marrying both political and sacred attributes in this new community he's creating. Israel's going to occupy a position of both sacred significance, that's because they're going to be priestly and holy, as well as political authority, a kingdom and a nation. And this is something they will never have experienced before. Remember, they were just sort of nomadic people wandering, and then they, they went into Egypt and ended up in slavery. God's already made covenants with them, He made one with Noah and he made one with Abraham. But this one's different. The one with Noah was never destroy earthly life again. And of course, the symbol of that was the rainbow. And with Abraham, God covenanted to be his God and his descendants' God. And the symbol of that was their obligation to be circumcised uh, in consecration to the Lord. But now he's making a covenant with a whole nation, not just one single individual. And it's conditional. Everything depends on Israel's willingness to listen to God moment by moment and keep their side of things. It's not a one-off like being circumcised, but it's a lifelong demand now from God to be in right relationship with him. Israel must, he says, be totally consecrated to him. They must live by his rule And they must serve his purposes. And only if they keep their side of the bargain will God keep his to make them a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Only then will they have the privilege of enjoying this sacred significance of political authority. But if they stop listening, if they don't keep the covenant, if they presume on their special status, then in that moment... They forfeit everything. That's why verses 5 and 6 are so extraordinary. Never in the whole of history, up till then, had one people occupied such a position in the world. It is a true turning point. The mountaintop isn't ordinary. God isn't ordinary. And now his people are not ordinary either. And so Moses goes trotting off back down the mountain to the people waiting there and they agree unanimously to it and they pledge their loyalty to God, verse 8. And lastly, back he goes up the mountain and conveys their answer to the Lord. And in that moment, the new nation was born into the world. Well, of course, as we know, nothing's ever straightforward. And everything goes to pot really quickly after that. And 
If you want to know more, do come back over the next few weeks and hear about it. But what we're going to do is going to leave that newborn nation there at the foot of the mountain, enjoying the covenant that they've just entered into with God. Because I want to think for a few minutes now about the implications of this new covenant for us, who are another community of people who have given their allegiance to God. What does it mean to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation in today's church? The language of this promise is taken up in Peter's first letter as he tries to describe the characters he wants to see in the early Christian church. And so Rosie's going to read to us now from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, uh, on page 1218. The living stone and a chosen people. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. you. So in that passage that we just heard, first of all, Peter says who we are, and then he outlines what we are to do, how we are to behave, in other words. So let's have a look at who we are first. I'm mainly focusing on the second half of that passage. Well, Peter echoes the words of the covenant in Sinai. We're chosen, that's who we are, just like Israel was. And by the way, that doesn't make us an elite kind of a cut above the norm, because we're chosen. We're a chosen people. We're not choice people, if you see my distinction. It's about God. It's not about us. We are his special possession, chosen by him and precious to him. Although we once were not a people, Peter says we are now a people of God, echoing words from Hosea. We are his treasured possession. We're a community dependent on God's grace 
and on his mercy, not on our own merits. Because remember, God doesn't choose the wise. He doesn't choose the mighty. He doesn't choose the, the, uh, the super spiritual or the specially holy. He chooses the foolish. He chooses the weak. He chooses the despised. Isn't that a great comfort to us? Those are the sorts of people that Jesus spent his time with. And we need to remember that. We are not here. We are not chosen. We do not come to the Lord because of anything that we have done, but only because of what Jesus has done for us. So God's covenant of grace first expressed on the mountaintop in Sinai, but now in the new covenant expressed in the person of Jesus. Hebrews 9.15, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So we are a chosen people. We are united with Jesus Christ who is the cornerstone, the rock on which we, we rest and place our faith. A chosen people. We're also a royal priesthood. We offer spiritual sacrifices. We declare the praises of God. And the temple of this new covenant, when it's not a building, an actual building of a temple or a church, it's, it's not a physical place, it's a spiritual one. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, says Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. We offer spiritual sacrifices. We offer ourselves, our bodies, in a way that can be holy and pleasing to God. And we're also a holy nation. We're believers whom Christ gathers from all nations, not just one nation of Israel. The grace that restored the sinful nature nation of Israel over and over and over again when they mucked up It's the same grace that brings each one of us into intimacy of fellowship with God. A holy nation. Holiness which isn't achieved by outward washing with water or by rituals or coming to church or anything like that, although all those are good and helpful. But it's achieved by inward cleansing of our hearts by God's Holy Spirit when we turn our lives over to Jesus. When we say, I don't want to do things my way anymore. I want to do things your way. Okay? So that's who we are. Chosen, royal, and holy through relationship with Jesus. But very much remembering that we're also foolish, weak, and despised in human terms. So if God doesn't choose his people because of their worth or because of their useful to him, usefulness to him, why does he choose us then? Well, if we look in Deuteronomy 7, it says this, The Lord did not choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because God loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. God chose the nation of Israel and all their spiritual descendants, which is us, because he loves us. He loves because he loves Simple as that. He loves us with a jealous, with a protective, with a consuming love. He nurtures us. He carries us in his arms. He holds us in his hands. He sets us on our feet close by his. We're his children. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're adopted into God's family. We are to be a people who bear his name. 
We are to be Christ's ambassadors in the world. I could go on and on, and so, so could many of you, I'm sure, for ages with the rest of the things the Bible says about God's love. He loves us. He chose us because he loves us. If you hear nothing else today, know that you are God's beloved. But what are we to do with this status that God's given us, chosen, holy and royal, out of his love? Well, firstly, we need to be putting a high view on what it means to be a member of the Church of Christ. We are not, or we shouldn't be, just a religious association of people that turns up on a Sunday and has a nice time and puts a tick in the holiness box for the rest of the week. We should be and are so much more than that in every single way. We are a community of people who should be bound together in the unity of our belief and the unity of our purpose as surely as we're united to God. And actually, do you know what? We're so deeply united because we're blood relatives related by the shed blood of Christ for each one of us. So here's my first challenge, one of two today. Do we behave like this? Do we place a high enough view on what it means to be a member of God's church, of this church? Do we do our utmost to maintain our love for one another and keep unity with one another in Christ? Do we forgive one another? Do we not allow things to divide us? Or are we prone to grumbling and holding on to grudges and undermining the purposes of God in enlarging his kingdom here? What are we like? Who wants to join a church that what it's mainly known for is complaining and grumbling? I would probably hazard a guess nobody. Okay? But who couldn't fail to be attracted to a church which is known by its love for one another? And that's a love that I experienced from myself over the past few weeks. So I know it's very strong here. A love that's widespread and a love that's rooted in God's love for us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if when people talk about St. Paul's out there, the first thing they say is that church where they know and love one another, where they know God and love one another. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And wouldn't it be wonderful if also they said, not that we're some cliquey holy huddle, but they're also known for our love for the communities outside the church where we live and work and have our leisure and and, uh, other places where we are. Are there attitudes that you, that me, that we need to repent of in order to make this to be the description that people have of our church in our wider community? Something you might want to go home and think about. Are you out of fellowship with somebody in our church or outside the church and you need to go and make things right? Are you grumbling because things aren't quite how you'd like them to be? or like they used to be. And you're not quite on board with where God's taking us on our journey to whatever our promised land is. If you are in that place, maybe you need to put that right with God and with anyone else that you need to forgive or ask forgiveness from. Now that's my first challenge. Have a high view of what it means to belong to God's church. Don't take it dismissively or casually. 
And secondly, my final point uh, you'll be pleased to hear is this. Our response to God's covenant grace. What is it? Well, Peter says it's to worship and adore God. It's to express our praises of him who's called us out of darkness into his glorious light. It's to respond in praise to, to God for who he is and to thank him for what he does. To declare his works, to commemorate all the things he's done to save us, but mostly just to rejoice in God himself. Because the heart of true worship is not what I, what you can get out of it. It's not about going away saying, oh, the worship was great, I had a really good time. It's not that. The heart of true worship is what we can give. What we give to the Lord through our worship. If we were mainly focused on what we could get out of it, that would be spiritual, feel-good, mountaintop experience seeking. And that's not what it's about at all. We need to give God our whole hearts, our whole bodies, our whole minds, our whole souls, our whole spirits. So here's the challenge. Are we taking our worship of God too casually? Are we thinking about what's in it for me? Are we making assumptions that God's always there, which of course he is, but then we diminish him to someone who's down at the foot of the mountain, not high on the spiritual mountaintop? Are we diminishing him to ordinary and everyday God? Sort of God, powerful, sovereign, almighty God. Because he is at the top of the mountain in fire and in thunder and in clouds and whirlwinds, the Bible says, and also sometimes in a still, small voice of calm. We should be approaching him with reverence and awe not taking for granted the love he's lavished on us, not taking for granted our chosen status, our holiness, our royal priestly standing through Jesus and his death on the cross for us. God, forgive us if we're doing that. God, forgive us. Let's approach God with reverence and awe in our worship. And let's remember this community he formed for himself and be known by our love for one another and for those whom God puts in our path. So we're going to respond to these challenges now by singing a song uh, which gives us an opportunity to recalibrate our approach to God. So the music team's going to come up, giving us an opportunity to worship him in reverence and awe, maybe even a turning point in your attitude towards him. And I'm going to suggest that in a moment when I pray and lead us into the song, that you might want to adopt an attitude of submission, reverence and awe. You might want to kneel or you might want to stand in a pose of submission or surrender. So if you'd like to Either stand or kneel now, whichever feels right for you. And of course, if you prefer, uh, if you feel more comfortable, do remain in an attitude seated. But I want to encourage as many of you who can to kneel or stand right now as I pray.